At North Point Community Church, we are passionate about helping our community move toward a life fully devoted to Jesus. And we hope this message helps you do that. Thank you for tuning in. Oh, my North Point family, isn't it nice to take a break out of the regular routine of the week and spend a few minutes thinking about who Jesus is and who we are in light of that, amen? I had a question for you. Uh, I'm curious, how many of you live your day, your life by a schedule? What I mean by that is like at least the majority of your day is planned out. Like you get up at a certain time, you pretty much eat at certain times for the most part. Kind of the same morning routine each day. You schedule meetings, uh, you schedule your exercise, you have a time for dinner, and for the most part, a set bedtime. How many of you guys pretty much live by a schedule? Yeah, these are my people. Jason in the back is freaking out. He's so excited right now about the schedule. These are my people. I, I get you. I'm with you. I'm curious about the other half who here, for the most part, kind of lives with no schedule. You're a little more free range. You kind of wake up when your body tells you to wake up or when the baby tells you to wake up. You eat when you're hungry. You sleep, for the most part, when you're tired. Um, maybe you have some set work hours. Maybe you're retired. You're an entrepreneur and you kind of work when you feel like working. How many of you guys, for the most part, live without a huge schedule? How do you stay alive? <laughs> like, but, oh, you're married to a schedule person. I see how, the, I don't know how you stay alive. I love you, and Jesus does too, but, um, but how do you stay alive? They, whoever they are, uh, they say that the most successful people live uh, by a tenaciously strict calendar. Uh, ben Franklin, if we just use him as an example, this was a sample of Ben Franklin's uh, uh, schedule every day. 5 a.m., rise, wash, and address powerful goodness. 6 a.m., contrive the day's business. 7 a.m., prosecute the present study and breakfast. 8 a.m., work. 12 p.m., read or overlook my accounts and dine. 2 p.m., work. 6 p.m., put things in their place. 7 p.m., supper, music, or diversion or conversation. 9 p.m., examination of the day, and 10 p.m., bedtime. Mark Wahlberg, on the other side of the scale, maybe from Ben Franklin, one of the most successful actors. Uh, this is his um, simple daily schedule. 2.30 a.m., wake up. 2.45, prayer time. 3.15 a.m., breakfast. 3.30 to 5.15 a.m., workout. 5.30 a.m., post-workout meal. 6 a.m., shower. 7.30 a.m., golf. 8 a.m. snack, he does a lot of eating. 9.30 a.m. cryo chamber recovery. 10.30 a.m. snack. 11 a.m. family time meetings, work calls. 1 p.m. lunch. 2 p.m. meetings, work calls. 3 p.m. pick up kids from school. 3.30 p.m. snack. 4 p.m. workout number two. 5 p.m. shower. 5.30 p.m. dinner, family time. 7.30 p.m. bedtime. Now, my free-range friends in the room, you're exhausted right now. You're like, what, did, what just happened? And some of you real uh, Uber schedule freaks, you're like, can I get a copy of that? Where do I find that? You can find that on Google. That's G-O-O. Tom Brady, some would say Tom Brady, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. He says, this is his uh, schedule. Um, incredibly successful man. He says, 5.30 a.m., wake up, drink electrolyte shake. 7 a.m., breakfast with family. 8 a.m., gym for strength training. 10 a.m., beach time. That must be nice. I don't even know what that is. 
11 a.m. review game footage, noon lunch, 3 p.m. team practice, 5 p.m. post-workout stretching yoga, 6 p.m. dinner with family, 7 p.m. review films strategy with coach, 7.30 p.m. family time, read to kids, 8.30 bedtime. Those guys, arguably some of the most successful people in their fields, at least by what the world would term success. And, and my question, and I don't know these guys, I like some of these guys, I don't know much about Ben Franklin, but, um, but my question would be, uh, while they're successful, are they healthy? Are they really living uh, well? <laughs> And schedule freaks in the room right now, you're like, oh, yeah, let's talk about schedules. Them, them free-range people need to get some schedules, especially if you're married to one. And, and, and the free-range people in the room, you're like, oh, how do I get out of here? You can't leave right now because I'd feel super bad about myself, and then I'd cry, and you don't want to see that. Right? But I'd just say, hang with me for a couple of minutes. I don't want to do a talk on schedules as much as I do want to look at um, this story from the Old Testament that I think deals with one of the most important pieces of our life that we manage, we're in this series called Old School Teaching, uh, and while these, these teachings, these stories, these events come from the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written for Jews. It was written for a specific people at a specific time in a specific place for a specific purpose, and we are not those people in that time, in that place, with that purpose, and so while those things were not written specifically with, with me, with us, Gentiles, two, three thousand, four thousand, five thousand years later... There are certainly some principles that we can pull from some of these stories that absolutely apply to today. And so I want to look at one story out of the life of the prophet Isaiah. And if you have the North Point app, this is a great time to pull that out. Or if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. I want to look at one story out of the prophet Isaiah's life. And it's really the thing that kicked him off, that launched him. And talk about how that applies, I think, to us. And as you're opening that, we're just beginning to think together. Let me just take a second and, and, and unpack that word prophet, because we maybe we've heard about these guys or um, during the pandemic, if you spent any time on YouTube, which may not be healthy at all anymore, um, there were lots of prophets coming out talking about this or that. And, and I'm just, there is a biblical concept of prophet. And that, that, that's a real simple job back in the day was someone that spoke for God. They did some predicting as well, some foretelling, but for the most part, they, they told what God wanted them to say. This is before uh, the Bible was really existing. It was obviously before Jesus was on the planet. And, and so when God wanted to speak to the people, he did that most often through a person called the prophet. So God would give them a message and they would give it on to the king or the nation or sometimes to foreign nations that we're conquering in. Like, they're just different things. God would speak through a person to a group of people like the first Wells Fargo, Pony Express, USPS, whatever helps you hang that imagery in your head. That was their job. And Isaiah was one of the prophets and he's one of the prophets considered by the Jews to be a key prophet. It was one of the most prolific in terms of writing and, and breadth of time served, all those things. And for the most part, served in the 8th, 8th century BC under multiple kings. He served during the reign of Assyria and Babylon. If you're a history nut at all, Jew, uh, Israel was going through all kinds of different conquerings from different nations. And so Isaiah was part of that all the way through both of those with Assyria and Babylon. He's cited in the New Testament around 20 times, often by Jesus, which is incredibly important, right? He spoke and wrote half of his book called Isaiah 
while the nation was still together in Jerusalem and then also during captivity. So there was a period of time where, where different nations came in and took took the Jews away, took the Israelites away, and Isaiah wrote on both of these sides of the scale. And one day, Isaiah has this vision. Vision, um, maybe a really intense dream, depending on how it kind of played out, but this is a real common way that God spoke to his prophets to give them a message to give to the people. A lot of times they'd have a vision, they'd have to unpack that a little bit, trying to figure it out and then share it with whoever they were supposed to share it with. And so that drops us into Isaiah chapter six, starting in verse one. And it says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train, the, the hem of his robe filled the temple, and above him were seraphim, each with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. So, so Isaiah goes to, goes to bed one night maybe, and he has this Incredibly vivid vision, this dream. And in this dream, God explodes onto the scene. And it's, the scene is the temple, which would have made a lot of sense to Isaiah. He could have interpreted that because that's in their mind where God existed, was in the temple. It's where God met with people. And so God is in this temple and Isaiah is there. And God's robe, just the, the bottom part is like filling this place, filling this space. Matter of fact, that word full or fullness is used like six times in this passage because Isaiah wants us to get the sense of just how, how transcendent, how huge, how massive God is. Not size so much, just about character. That, that God fills this space in, in Isaiah's vision. And, and as God is filling this space and Isaiah's trying to figure this out, there are these creatures, these angels, they call them seraphim, and they're, they're kind of bizarre, they got wings, whatever, and they're there. And so Isaiah is experiencing God's imminent and massive presence, his transcendence. God's transcendence is not remote or aloof, but his fullness permeates all of heaven and all of earth. And Isaiah is experiencing this in an incredibly tangible way. And this is what happens next in verse three. It says, and they, those, those angels, those seraphim were calling to one another. And they said, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. See, we read that. And I don't know. We read it like, holy, holy, holy. And that's not how it was said. It was said in such a way as Isaiah is experiencing the fullness of this transcendent God. Isaiah is experiencing this. He hears these voices. These creatures are shouting this word, holy, to such a degree that it begins to shake the building they're in. That's crazy stuff, right? I mean, you wake up from that dream in a cold sweat, Right? And, and, and as he's experiencing this fullness of God with these voices, this word holy, we, we, when, we, when we think of it, sometimes we just think of it in terms of like, well, there's no sin. And, and that's, that's true. But when it's applied to God, it means so much more. It is this sense of otherness. Like God is so different from everything else that we know or experience. And in Isaiah's case, as he's having this, this vision, this, this, this word that the volume is increasing, the intensity is increasing, the importance is increasing, he's reminded and struck fresh with the reality that God is so singularly pure, so, so uniquely different than he is. 
God is at a whole different level, a whole nether set apartness. And these angels are helping Isaiah to experience this. And Isaiah sees this, and there's this amazing vision of who God is. Hear this. We need to be confronted by the greatness of God, the true terror, power, and purity of God. See, we fool around with sin and silliness, when in truth, we need an Isaiah moment. Too often we view God as this impotent grandfather in the sky who winks at our sin or chuckles at our misplaced priorities. We forget that in truth he is the fullness of space and time. And at his very name, mountains shake and nations are brought to their knees. Amen? Amen. Isaiah caught this in an incredibly tangible way. So in verse five, he does this. Temple is filling, and he's seeing this vision. There's volume, and there's angel, and there's God, and he says, "Woe to me!" It's <laughs> a great word, woe, <laughs> woe, <laughs> woe to me! I'm doomed. He's like I'm in deep trouble. <laughs> he says, "Woe to me!" I cried, "I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty." Isaiah says the right thing, the right response of, oh, dang, I don't know how to put that in modern language. He says, I'm, I'm in deep trouble. And he uses this language of lips. He says, because my lips are unclean and I live among people whose lips are unclean. He's not talking about his lips. I think that's a metaphor for the out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he's really saying like, at my core is the problem. Like I've, I've experienced God in his fullness in this moment. And I've just realized how different and amazing and huge this God is. And I realized how I am not. Man, I got a core problem. Not only do I have a core problem, but like my whole world has a core problem. I'm living with people who have a core problem. I have a core problem. I'm part of the problem. Like Isaiah has this, I say, come to Jesus moment, right? Come to God moment. Isaiah is broken because he is so messed up, so unlike God, and he, and he talks about his uncleanliness, his, his just so small in the comparison to God Almighty, and then this is what happens in verse six. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for so in this vision, this, this angel grabs this coal, and, and fire and coal was, was a very common picture back in the day of cleansing, of purifying. We've all seen the movies, right? Like before they cut the bullet out of the guy, and they like light up the blade or whatever. It's like that idea of purifying, cleansing, and cauterize the wound. I don't know, I'm not a doctor. But, but this idea, and so, and so this happens to Isaiah in this vision that, that this angel touches his lips to present this concept that, that your guilt is taken away, and he says it to him just so he doesn't miss it. He says, you're not guilty, and it says that his sin is atoned for. It's interesting because it's not that Isaiah is this new creation. That, that comes later in Jesus. But it's this, this word picture of Isaiah has been patched up, covered over with pitch is the language. He's been patched up. He's been made usable again. He's not what he will be one day when, when Jesus comes onto the scene and takes away our So We have such a privilege in that. We're not just like patched up people. We're new creation people. But Isaiah, in this vision, sees this picture, and, and this angel says that you're, you're not guilty. You've been patched up. You're usable. 
And then this very bizarre thing happened. I mean, Isaiah could have left there. If he would have just walked out of the vision, I don't know how that works. But if he would have just walked out of the vision and been like, praise God, I'm usable. Like that would have been a cool story. And we'd be like, hey man, let's sing. And that's super neat. But he doesn't, he like, he stays. I tend to think, cause he's probably on his face, not sure what to do, but he stays. And then this is what happens. This is the weird, one of the weirdest parts for me in verse eight. It says, and then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Like, like who will go for us? In my mind, the picture looks something like Isaiah on the ground and God maybe standing now out of this throne. He's filling this space and I think he's not making eye contact. I'm making this up with Isaiah. He's looking around, he's like, so I got this thing. I got this need, God doesn't have any needs. I got this need, anybody wanna help me out with it? And Isaiah's there. And that's so bizarre to me that God asks because God could have told, God tells often, right? God could have told, but he asks. He doesn't cajole, coerce, force, or demand. He asks this question. He says, I have this message, who will go? And it's, it's interesting because it makes me think back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. After Adam and Eve sin, they, they hide in a bush. Do you remember this story? They choose sin, they hide in a bush, it's so silly. And God comes down like he often does, which is why they're hiding, and he, and he says to him, where are you? <laughs> I can't see you, right? And it's a silly kind of thing, but and God didn't have to ask. He could have just like zapped the bush and then been like, ah, but he doesn't. He asks and, and he gives Adam and Eve this opportunity. And so he asks in this moment as Isaiah has experienced the fullness of God as much as you can in a vision. He says, so who will go? And then here's the second weirdest part. It's Isaiah's response. Second half of verse eight, so who shall I go? Who'll go for us? And I said, Isaiah said, I said, here I am, send me. And then God says, go. What is wrong with Isaiah? Like, here's the question I wanna process today. Why? Why did Isaiah say that? Why did he volunteer for that? What, what was in him that made him take on that responsibility? Why did Isaiah say yes to God? See, if it had been me, it might have sounded a lot more like, uh, hey, God, I've got a few names. I'm gonna write them down for you. I'll leave them over here. You can pick those up whenever you're not busy, right? Or, or possibly it would have sounded like, I'm not so good on the going thing, but I know a guy. I'm gonna come and send him a text right now, and, uh, and, and, and he'll probably pick that right up for you. That'd be great. Yeah, you're welcome for the help. No problem. Uh, in, my, in my darker moments, it probably would have sounded a lot more like this. <laughs> School teachers know this one, right? I need a volunteer to read. Well, don't make eye contact. <laughs> don't notice me, don't look at me. If I just wait this out, somebody else will volunteer. If it were me and Isaiah's shoes, I think that I might have done that. Or, or maybe like in my inner voice playing in my head as this question is asked, I think I might've thought, I'm really busy right now. Like I got a lot on my plate. I got a lot, like a lot I'm supposed to tackle. I just don't have time for this. Three months from now, I have a lot more time to tackle this. So if he waits like three months, I'm in. If he asks again, maybe. But I'm sure somebody else could probably pick this up. If it were me, it probably would have sounded a lot more like that. But it was Isaiah and he just immediately says yes to God. He makes himself available to God to this sort of poorly defined job. Like, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, send me. No, where? When? How much will it cost? Can I bring my wife? What do I do with my kids? What about the business? None of that. Who will go? Huh? That's, 
Amazing, what was it in Isaiah that just made him be available to God? He had crafted his life in such a way that he was available to say yes to God. Like, don't underestimate the importance of a, of a come to Jesus moment that Isaiah had, right? Hear this. It's foolish to think that we can somehow serve God until we come to the end of ourselves. See, we are not basically nice folks with an unfortunate tendency to mess up. We are proud, arrogant, self-centered, perverse, cruel, violent rebels in whom the stain of sin and sinfulness goes down to the last atom in the last molecule. There's a strong likelihood that until we come to an understanding of ourselves like this, we will treat the grace of God, his unfailing, undeserved love as a throwaway item. Of course God loves me, that's his job. No, it's not his job. It's an unimaginable, unexpected, and indeed unnecessary wonder of the universe. Amen? See, seeing the fullness of God like Isaiah did compelled him to craft his life in such a way that he was available to say yes to God. Now, assuming that everybody in this room has had that experience. Maybe not the same experience, Isaiah. You didn't have a dream or a vision and God was shaking the temple and yelling, they were yelling, and they're like, ah! You didn't have that. But at some point in your life, you've come to the realization of how huge God is and that he is truly preeminent in your life, in your world, in your decision-making. Like, if that's true, and I, and I say assuming because I don't know. Sometimes I wonder because we're just so, like, light on sin, I am. Like, no big deal. Oh, I messed up again. I don't know. But, but assuming we've had this, this encounter with the living God that, no, that, that, that causes to know how huge he is, assuming that, let me just spend the last few minutes we have together focused on how. How do we craft our life in such a way that allows us to be available to say yes to God? See, there's a lot of other Old Testament Bible characters who said yes to God. Isaiah wasn't the only one. Abraham was told to go to a land. God didn't tell him where to go. He just said go, and Abraham went. He just said yes to God. Noah was told to build a boat, and he built a boat. He got some basic blueprints. I'm not sure he understood completely why, but he was told to build a boat, and he built a boat. Joshua was told he was gonna step in and lead when Moses died. Those were huge shoes to fill, and Joshua said, okay. Right, and then we got all the prophets. Most of the Old Testament books are prophets who did similar things. Nehemiah left a cushy job in the palace to take his people back to Jerusalem and rebuild that city. That doesn't sound pretty. Jeremiah was constantly saying things that were not pleasant and nobody really wanted to hear only because God told him to. Daniel thrived in a foreign land while still staying obedient to his religious values and his God simply because God wanted him to. Hosea said yes to buying his wife back multiple times out of prostitution because God told him to. Right? No time to mention dozens of other prophets who all have stories of saying yes to God. And if you jump into the New Testament, tons of people, same story, saying yes to God. Mary and Joseph Right, both said yes to being Jesus' mom and stepdad, not a job I would sign up for. And yet, because God asked, they said, yes, Saul, who changes his name later to Paul, starts off saying no to God, and then literally has a come to Jesus moment, and then says yes to God and lives a life after that is harsh and hard. You got the 12 apostles and countless disciples of men and women who all said yes to God. What was different about these folks, what, what was in them that made them able to say yes to God? And, and here's what I'm suggesting this morning, is that these folks had cultivated in their lives the spiritual discipline of margin. 
These folks made space in their life so that they could say yes to God, crafting their lives in such a way that they have margins. For us, crafting our lives in such a way that we have margins, margins of time, margins of money, margins of mental bandwidth, you know what I mean by that? Margins of emotion, margins of soul, there's probably more. Making space in these areas, not just filling them to the edges of overflowing. And so you ask yourself, is my daily schedule so full that there's just no room for margins? The, um, the schedule gurus, the schedule gurus, they say that you have to minimize distractions in your daily schedule as to maximize your output. That sounds really good. And the challenge with it is that I can guarantee when God asks, it will be a distraction to your schedule. When God comes and says, so I have this thing, it will be a distraction. Your friend never calls you for help when you have free time right? The ability to fund that missionary project or that church program or whatever it might be, that nonprofit, it never comes right after you get the massive tax return. Your, your kids never ask you the deep spiritual questions when you have scheduled family devotion time. It's always on the ride from the soccer to the dance to the dinner fast food to to bed. At, at, that's when those questions come. Whenever God seems to interrupt, it's interrupting, it's always a distraction. It's interesting because God built margin into our system. And we just miss it sometimes. He built margin into our daily rhythm. There is light and there is dark. There is a time to work and there is a time to uh, unwork, not work, to rest. Daily, we have this. We've helped God out by inventing so many things so we can extend that work even longer. Helped God out. Isn't that a funny phrase? There's a weekly built into the system. God called it Sabbath, where you work six days and then you have one day where you unwork. You don't work. You, you don't work. You rest. You Sabbath. You think about other things. You have time to dream. You work and rest. The Jewish festivals, they had this built into their party season. Every year they had a number of parties they had to put on and do and attend and go to. And a couple of them, one of them was called a Sabbath year. So every six years you would uh, work the land. And then on the seventh year, you would not work the land. You'd let the land have a year off. That sounds kind of funny to us because I don't think that we do that. I don't know. I'm not a farmer. But, but, but for them, they had this big party on that seventh year to just celebrate. And then they had this thing called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was this picture of every seventh season of sevens. So you got seven Sabbath years. And on that 50th year, they had this massive party. They called it year of Jubilee. And that was a weird one because they would just give everything back that they had bought or bartered over the last 50 years. So if you bought land, you just like give it back to the original owner. If you bought servants, you'd give them back to the, that's kind of some crazy stuff right there. Right? But this, this picture I think of building in margin for, for harvesting. And again, the Jews were a very agrarian culture, lots of planting and growing and reaping. They were told to not reap all the way to the edges of their field, but actually leave some unharvested for poor people to come along and pick it. Like that's that margin right there, literal picture of margin. So when we read the New Testament, like Jesus and his guys were walking along and like picking heads of grain and stuff, that's not like them stealing crops, right? That's them just utilizing that principle. They called it gleanings, right? Built into harvesting. Tithing is an Old Testament concept where you give a percentage of your stuff away to immediately build into you the habit of not just always living at whatever you make. And for those guys, it wasn't just money. It was like a tenth of everything. Their stuff, their animals, their cows, their sheep, whatever they had, right? 
to help them understand to not just live on everything that they had, to build some margin into their lives. Practicing the spiritual discipline of margin is what allows us to be available to say yes to God. Margin creates the ability to hear and to stop and to breathe and not run so fast that we miss what God's trying to say to us. Interesting, in the book of Psalms, uh, it's a whole book of songs, actually, like 100 or something of them, and, and our poems, if you wanna look at it that way. The book of Psalms, there's this word, it appears 71 times. It's the word selah, S-E-L-A-H, selah. And, and, it, and it appears right after a paragraph. It's just a little word. It's a little musical notation that literally means in the Hebrew, stop. Pause. Means to breathe in and breathe out. So in their worship, they had these moments that were built for margin, these times of stopping and just reflecting and thinking and breathing. See, margin is biblical. Running your life to the edges is not. Spending every dollar you make or spending more than you make by the use of credit cards, filling every moment of your day with something, constant noise, constant voices, is not healthy living. And it creates a life where you're unavailable to God. You might disagree with this next part. That's okay. I developed this little mini test that we'll just take this morning as a group to find out, do we have margin in our lives? Three simple questions. You just answer them. Three simple questions. Do we have margin in our lives? Here's the first question. Are you ever bored? Back when I was a kid, I was bored a lot. <laughs> 80s kids, I think that was part of growing up in the 80s, right? Like you're bored, some of you guys are like, 80s? That was a thousand years ago it was. And then we tell the jokes here about when we told our parents, I'm bored. They said, I'll give you something to do, right? <laughs> Are you ever bored? Like my, my generation, we, we raised our kids to not be bored. Boredom was the enemy, man. So we filled their time so full of stuff. We're rushing them from thing to 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 thing. So they grew up thinking that's how we live lives, running from thing to 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 thing. My generation, I think we invented the credit card generation. I don't know, maybe we'll blame the boomers, but whoever it is, right? Living in such a way that we're just maxing credit cards. We have zero ability to control our mind. Are we ever bored is a great question to ask. Here's the second thing. Do you have money in your bank account? And I'm not talking like your 401k or your savings or your retirement. Or, I'm talking money in your account that's not earmarked for anything else. Money that if you lost it or gave it away, it wouldn't, it wouldn't bother you. It's a dollar or a quarter or a bazillion dollars. I don't care about the number. Is there money in your bank account that if it just went away, it really wouldn't stress you out? Or are you living your financial life with no margin whatsoever? Here's the third question. Do you daydream? Not like, not like at night you have dreams, but like do you daydream? Do you have space in your brain that sometimes it wanders to things that are like, what could be, or what might happen, or what ifs, or those daydream type things. Do you daydream? I suggest that if the answer is no, then maybe you're struggling with this concept, the spiritual discipline of margin. And I might suggest that it's gonna make it difficult to say yes to God. See, Isaiah wasn't any more spiritual than you or me. He, he just had this moment where he realized how huge God was, and it, it compelled him to craft his life in such a way that he had margin so he could be available to say yes to God. 